The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. If you are in Christ, depend upon it. There is now no condemnation for you. But everlasting righteousness is your portion in the sight of God. And herein lies the great difference between an unbeliever out of Christ and the believer in Christ. The unbeliever has his judgment day before him, but the believer in Christ has his judgment day behind him. For him, judgment is past and gone. There is no condemnation, for he that believeth on him is not condemned. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we will be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled No Possible Condemnation. One of Charles Wesley's greatest hymns is And Can It Be That I Should Gain. Seizing upon the glorious truths in chapter 8 of Romans, Wesley wrote, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. He knew that the amazing love of Christ had set him free from any possible condemnation and it made him sing with joy. Do you rejoice in the knowledge that there is no condemnation for you? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, No Possible Condemnation. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. How we praise thee for the present salvation that is ours in Christ for the joy of victory, for the life of triumph, for the vista of glory that lies before us. Bless the truth to each listening heart in this hour. We ask it in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text today is two words out of Romans 8.1, no condemnation. The order of the English translation was followed in our last study of this text with the emphasis on the basis, the foundation of the freedom from condemnation rooted in all of the truths set forth in the earlier chapters of the epistle. The Greek is almost startling in its declaration. Literally, it would read something like this. Not a whit, therefore, now of condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The only translator who has approximated this is Phillips, but he has done this at the expense of leaving out the great connecting word, therefore, which we have already seen is of so great importance. He opens his paraphrase of this chapter as follows. No condemnation now hangs over the head of those who are in Christ Jesus. The negative is much stronger than the ordinary word used for no or not. 
It is an emphatic form, rendered even more emphatic in that it is the word used for the beginning of the sentence. We do not have distinct words in English for the differentiation of this idea. In French, such a distinction exists. Il n'y a pas would be a simple negative. There is not. But il n'y a aucun is a special negative. There is not one. And the Greek is like the French in this. It would be correct to bring out the strength of the passage by translating it, not any, therefore, of condemnation is there for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, when God says a thing is positive, we may be sure that it is positive. When he says that a thing is negative, we may be sure that it is negative. It is the Lord who told us that our yea should be yea and our nay, nay. He's trying to teach us to be like himself. When he makes a statement, we may be sure of its truth, down to the last final detail. It's interesting to note that there are two common words in Greek for the negative, u and me, all other negatives being combinations of one or the other of these with particles. U expresses a full and direct negation, independently and absolutely, not depending on any condition expressed or implied. Me expresses a conditional negation, depending on feeling or in some idea, conception or hypothesis. There are times, however, when there is the thought of a very emphatic negative, that the two of these words are used together, u me. Now it's interesting to note that in the Gospels, this double form of absolute negative is used five times on the lips of men, and each time a close study will reveal that the men were mistaken. It was this double emphatic negative that Peter used when he told the Lord he should not die. This shall not be unto thee. But it was. Again, Peter used this double emphatic negative when he said, I will not deny thee. But he did. Some said, What think ye that he will not come to the feast? But he did. Peter said, Thou shalt never wash my feet. But he did. Thomas said, Except I shall see, I will not believe. But he did. On the other hand, our Lord Jesus Christ used this solemn double negative on 46 occasions. It's impossible to distinguish these uses from one of the simple negatives in our translations. But a close study of these 46 passages will show us that in every case the statement of the Lord was fully true, or that it concerns a promise of something that will be, such as, My word shall not pass away. How vain is the threat of man, and how empty his attempts to prevent a thing that shall come to pass. How certain, on the other hand, is the promise of the Lord, and how sure are the barriers that he has erected. His promises are yea and amen to us. And when he says that a thing shall not be, we may be sure that no weapon that is formed against us shall prosper, and that his counsels can never be overcome. Now, while the negative that is used in our text is no more than a strong combination of the first of these negatives, udes, we can be sure, more than sure, that there is no condemnation against us, now nor forever. Later in the chapter, the Lord will take up the legal principles that are involved and will furnish us with a technical judicial explanation to demonstrate that judgment could never be passed upon us. We are in Christ and we are safe. The matter will become even more certain to our hearts if we will realize the things that are not said. We do not read that there is no cause for condemnation in us, but that there is no condemnation for us. Oh, certainly there is cause and a plenty. 
for we have a score of charges that have been brought against all members of the human race and a number of statements which have shown our participation in the fallen position of the race, even after we have been saved. The first chapter of Romans ends with a terrible bill of complaint against the actions of the unsaved man who is shown to be a habitual sinner and one who habitually consorts with ungodly men taking pleasure in their doings. Religious people are so evil in spite of their pretensions that the name of God is blasphemed among the unbelievers because of them, we are told in the second chapter. A physical diagnosis is presented in the third chapter and the anatomy of man is taken symbolically to show how every part of the being is corrupt. All have gone aside. All together have become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. It was when we were without strength, sinners, ungodly, that Christ died for us. In Adam we died, and his sin flowed into every member of the race, bringing all evil in its train. Even as believers joined to Christ, there is sin against whose reign we are exhorted. And in the last studies of the seventh chapter, we have seen that the seepage of the old fleshly nature is within all believers, so they can never, while in this body, know perfect, unmixed good. All these things are a cause of condemnation, yet there is now no condemnation against us because we are in Christ Jesus. The Lord is addressing men who are sinners, though we are not condemned for our sin and cannot be because we are in Christ Jesus. It would be just as possible to condemn Christ as it would be to condemn a man who is now in Christ. Furthermore, it is not said, as Rainsford has pointed out, that there are no faults, no failures, no infirmities, no inconsistencies, no fleshly corruptions. But thanks be to God, it is said that there is no condemnation. As we go on through the epistle, we shall see that the last five chapters are almost exclusively devoted to exhortations to righteousness and expressed in such terms that it is impossible to hold otherwise than that these Christians in Rome were filled with the things they were exhorted to abandon, and that they were practicing the things that they were commanded to leave. Yet, in spite of this fact, there was no condemnation against them as there is none against us now, from the moment that we are in Christ. And why? Because the Lord Jesus has already suffered all the condemnation due to the sins, infirmities, failures, faults, inconsistencies, and corruptions belonging to our sinful fallen nature. And there is therefore now no condemnation to the children of God who trust in him. Therefore, in spite of what we may have been as sinners, or in spite of what we are as saints, there is no condemnation for us now, because we stand uncondemnable as being in Christ. Before going on, let me quote one more paragraph from Rainsford. There is nothing in my flesh but the law of sin. But nevertheless, in consequence of my union with the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, his suffering for my sins and in my place has justified me before God forever. And there is now and henceforth no condemnation for me on any ground whatever. This is the glorious liberty of the gospel of the grace of God. Hold it fast. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Why? simply because they are in Christ Jesus. Oh, what human language can describe the privileges here expressed in Christ Jesus, in him now for the trials and troubles of life, 
God help those who have him not. Of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In him for righteousness against all condemnation for the past. In him for sanctification against all condemnation in the present. In him for redemption against all anxiety for the future. In him for a home, a hiding place, and a portion. In him for life evermore. In him in order to be qualified to see God and to live with God by and by. Found in him when the cold dewdrops of death are on the brow. In him when the day of judgment summons us. In him when the sea gives up its dead and the graves restore their prey. In him presented faultless before the throne. Acknowledged before the universe to be in him. And not only so, but to be like unto him before whom angels and the archangel veil their faces. Oh, it is beyond all that eye has ever seen or ear hath heard, or has ever entered into the heart of man to conceive. If you are in Christ, depend upon it, there is now no condemnation for you, but everlasting righteousness is your portion in the sight of God. Just in proportion as you apprehend by faith that you are dwelling in Christ and he in you, your walk and fellowship will be with him. God rules his people by love, for there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. And herein lies the great difference between an unbeliever out of Christ and the believer in Christ. The unbeliever has his judgment day before him, but the believer in Christ has his judgment day behind him. For him, judgment is past and gone. There is no condemnation. For he that believeth on him is not condemned. All that follows in this glorious chapter is built upon the great truth expressed in this opening line. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. In view of all this, it is not amazing that Satan has sought to adulterate this truth. How many millions of people have followed the false reading of the King James Version, which adds a sentence that is not in the original manuscripts? We can probably show how that phrase, who walked not after the flesh but after the spirit, became inserted here. But certainly it does not belong here. How then did it come into the King James translation? It may be well at this point to introduce a brief lesson on the process by which the New Testament was transmitted to us. First, I wish to make a brief comparison with another document that dates from a few years before the New Testament. We are most of us familiar with Julius Caesar and his Gallic Wars. Anyone who has ever taken even two years of Latin has probably come in contact with the Latin text, which is now accepted and used in our schools. Where did that Latin text come from? When printing was invented, editors took the written manuscripts that existed and reduced them to the printed text. But how many manuscripts of Julius Caesar are there from those times before printing was invented? Is the original manuscript in existence? It is not. Are there any copies from Caesar's own day? None. Are there any manuscripts of Caesar from the century after him? None. From two centuries, three centuries, four centuries? None. The oldest known manuscript of Julius Caesar dates from about 1,000 years after his death. 1,000 years, not one manuscript, and then one. Well, are, are the scholars concerned as to whether we have the real, the original Caesar? They are not. 
The consensus is that the copies which we have in print are reliable documents, differing in little of importance from the originals that were long since lost. Well, what about the New Testament? The answer is that there are several thousand manuscripts of the New Testament that are older than any manuscript of Caesar. Several thousand. Yet there have been people who complained that we could not trust the Bible because there were so many so-called discrepancies in the manuscripts. Let us look at these discrepancies. The several thousand manuscripts have been found in all of the countries surrounding the Mediterranean and in the islands of that sea. They have come to us from Egypt, from Sinai, from Palestine and Syria and the deserts around them. They have come to us from Asia Minor and from Thessaly. They have come to us from Greece, from Italy, from Sardinia and Corsica, from Gaul and Spain. They have come to us from ancient Mauritania, from the lands around Carthage, from the African coast, from oases in the deserts. They have come to us from Libya. That takes us around the Mediterranean and back to Egypt. Some of these manuscripts are absolutely complete. Some of them are partial. The stories of the preservation and the discovery of some of these manuscripts are romantic and exciting. Fragments have been found in refuse heaps, and one fragment at least has been found glued within a mummy wrapping and hiding the body of a man who died in the year 99, thus dating the Gospel of John beyond any question as prior to that date. One of the most important manuscripts of the whole New Testament was found by a scholar in a monastery where they were about to use it to light their fires. Two pages had been burned when he found it. Now, all of these manuscripts have been codified. Many of them have been named. They have symbols by which scholars can compare them. Codex Aleph, A, B, and so on. It is true that, at times, 20 manuscripts found in Spain, for example, will omit a certain verse or have a certain addition or error. Scholars immediately judge that such errors came from copying one manuscript which had reached Spain in that form. But since the hundreds of other manuscripts found elsewhere all agree against the 20, they are discarded at once as irrelevant. During the last 200 years, an immense amount of scholarship has been expended on the reconstruction of the Greek text. This is called the lower criticism, and some of the best brains of scholarship have been given to this tedious reconstruction of the original text. Erasmus brought out the first attempt at a critical text in 1516. He was followed by many others, Beza, Elzevir, in 1624, already showing that there was a need for a few revisions in our authorized version. In the last century, notable editions have been issued, each editor striving to produce a text more accurate than that of his predecessors. That of Westcott and Hort, which was issued from 1881 to 1903, and that of Nestle in 1904 are considered the best Greek texts. Now, none, none of the important editions of the Greek of Romans 8.1 include the phrase, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. These words were in the text from which the authorized version was translated at the end of the 16th century and the beginning of the 17th. But how did it come to be in some texts? There are two possible explanations. There have always been some Christians who have been afraid of the unadulterated truth. I have had people come to me saying that they believed that there was no condemnation whatsoever for those who were in Christ Jesus, but that they thought that it was dangerous to teach such a doctrine to young Christians, lest they be lulled into carnality. 
I have noted at the beginning of the sixth chapter of Romans that the doctrine of immoral tendency has always been leveled against those who taught the complete doctrine of justification by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. It is possible that someone added the words to the Bible, even as some preachers today preach salvation and then spoil it all by adding to it. These are the men who say, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. But of course it is possible for a man to take himself out of God's hand. Such a gospel is another gospel, and they have perverted the gospel of grace. Now the other possibility is that some sleepy monk put the words in this text through carelessness, and that the error was perpetuated in certain manuscripts copied from his. We must realize that before printing, the copying of manuscripts was an art, carried on by the scribes and the copyists, and that there were monks in some of the monasteries who were great artists at this work and adorning manuscripts of the Bible. There were also some men who copied pages of the texts as hack work for ordinary use, and sometimes they prescribed themselves hours of copying work as a penance. Let us follow one of these men into his study where he's engaged in his task. The Greek lies before him. Sometimes he knew only Latin and was copying Greek laboriously without much comprehension of what he was doing. But here is a man who has been working hour after hour on this meticulous task. He comes to the passage that is before us. He's so sleepy that he can hardly see. He dips his quill in the ink and gets the first sentence down. There is, therefore, now, no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. He dozes for a moment, and then his eye lifts to the page from which he's copying. In those days, there were no divisions whatsoever into what we know as chapters and verses. His eye lighted upon what we would call the fourth verse, and there he read, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. It sounded all right here, and he copied the words in to end our sentence. He then found his real place and went on with what we would call verse 2. If anyone checked his work, they may have read it over in cursory fashion and not have noted that the gloss, as such a slipshod error is called, totally changed the spiritual sense of the passage. For there is no gospel at all if condemnation is removed only from those who are able to live good lives. The whole nature of the gospel is distorted. Law is reintroduced and salvation becomes by works instead of by faith. Joy departs. The light of justification by faith is extinguished. Fear re-enters the heart of the sinner. Doom lies before him, and he knows that he has no power to escape from it. The gospel becomes no gospel. It's interesting to note that the Lord Jesus Christ, in speaking to the woman taken in adultery, used the spiritual order of that which is set forth in our text. How terrible it would have been if he had said to the woman, go and sin no more, and then I will not condemn thee. That's no gospel. But what he did say to her was the proper order. One, neither do I condemn thee. Two, go and sin no more. Praise be to God. These words do not belong here in this first verse, and they are not to be found in the revisions. The scholars have done their work well in reestablishing the text, and any Christian can pick up his Bible knowing that whatever version he's reading from, he can find the story not only of man's complete ruin in sin, but of God's perfect remedy in Christ. You are not to allow a gloss such as this to destroy your faith in the version. Almost any edition of the scriptures 
is sufficient to lead a man to Christ if he reads it. But here we can stop with a great declaration. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And our God and Father, we ask thee to bless the truth to each heart this day. We pray thee for the weak, the stumbling, those who are weary and heavy laden. May they understand what it is to come to the Lord Jesus Christ to find rest, to know that sin has been dealt with once and for all and forever, and that we stand complete in him, possessing eternal life, uncondemned now and forever. If there be any who listen who have not been born again, give them restlessness, that they may know no peace until they rest in Christ. But upon thine own who have truly believed in thee, may thy grace, thy mercy, and thy peace abide and a new sense of our great and glorious freedom from condemnation. And unto thee be all the glory now, till the Lord Jesus come again and forever. Amen. There is no longer any possible condemnation hanging over those who are in Christ Jesus. We are absolutely free from God's wrath and are now the objects of His eternal love and grace. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, No Possible Condemnation. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse anytime, anywhere around the globe via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at AllianceNet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, No Possible Condemnation, or simply request message number R8-2. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, The Bible Under Attack. Believers embrace the Holy Scriptures as the very Word of God, but for years the reliability and trustworthiness of the Bible has been challenged by the enemies of the Gospel. This five-chapter booklet addresses subjects such as Jesus and the Scriptures, written by God, the inspiration of the Scriptures. This booklet powerfully reaffirms the inerrancy, infallibility, and authority of the living Word of God. Ask for your free copy of The Bible Under Attack when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you've benefited from this broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at AllianceNet.org. 
Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.